0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Translating the Latest Research Advances into Routine Care for Alzheimer's Disease, Preparing Dementia Specialists with the Latest Strategies to Support Early Diagnosis and Comprehensive Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GAZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Marwan Sabah, Professor of Neurology at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Today I'm going to talk about translating the latest research advances in routine care for Alzheimer's disease. We really want to spend this time to prepare dementia specialists and physicians at large with the latest strategies to support early diagnosis and comprehensive care. This talk will actually have three parts, and the first one we'll be talking about optimizing the uh, diagnosis, particularly optimizing early detection diagnosing using the validated biomarkers and the emerging biomarkers. Fundamentally, you'll see that we need to evolve from a diagnosis of exclusion to a diagnosis of inclusion. And I suspect we're going to say that a few times. If you look at the growing healthcare uh, burden of Alzheimer's disease, you're talking about 67% of all dementias. And if you look at the statistics worldwide, you're talking about 55 million people in the world. Having it and almost 140 million people in the world having it by the middle of this century. And you see here that the numbers just keep growing and growing and growing, with the estimates putting it almost at uh, 14 million people by the middle of this century in the United States alone. And particularly the group that is uh, going to be very affected is the uh, very elderly. We have many gaps and I think this uh, this program today will kind of walk us through what are the many gaps that we face. The first one is that we don't diagnose Alzheimer's very well, we don't do it accurately, uh, but we recommend early detection and diagnosis. And so if this audience takes anything away is we have to be able to do a better job in diagnosing uh, uh, cognitive decline, particularly mild cognitive impairment, beyond research just in the earliest stages of detectable changes at the earliest opportunity to do so. So we also know that uh, fundamentally that uh, these conditions are missed. Uh, they're very rarely diagnosed in the mild cognitive impairment stage. More than 40% of patients, even in, into the mild dementia stage, go undetected. And some people never told that they have Alzheimer's uh, dementia. So we know we're not doing a good job. And fundamentally, the, the issue that we will talk about is that we're not using the new diagnostic technologies uh, which can influence our uh, medical practice in a significant way. So the question that is being asked is why do we want to have early detection diagnosis? And that's because there's a lot of value to it. So what are the fundamental things we want to achieve? One is we want to increase specificity and certainty of diagnosis. Two is that patients want to know what's wrong with them. This idea that patients don't want to know is actually a myth. When dad is forgetting, getting lost, is that because he has a brain tumor or because he has Alzheimer's? People want to know. And three is with that kind of precision, we actually can be very direct in telling patients on what to expect and how to go about it. And it allows for care planning. It allows for discussions. It allows for future planning, et cetera. And then in the particular mild cognitive impairment, people will say, gee, well, what can I do to prevent myself from getting worse? And so they can engage in their own health and healthcare and they can do lifestyle changes that might slow the progression. Uh, and then of course, we wanna stage our patients to know where they're at in their AD uh, journey and severity and what biological changes have already occurred. Uh, I actually will tell you that uh, we're gonna select patients very carefully now in the advent of the monoclonal antibodies around uh, what is appropriate uh, severity-wise, exclusion conditions. Would we put them in clinical trials? Would we talk about a monoclonal antibody? And then we want to monitor them and see how they're doing in response to therapy. And then we have to talk about the uh, possibility that there are other uh, things that could be contributing. The worst thing you want to do is call patient Alzheimer's disease, and it's because they're on an anticholinergic and it's easily reversible. So we want to talk about ways to Reverse uh, find reversible causes, and uh, intervene on patients who are in the, heading toward neurodegeneration and find ways to uh, alter that. So let's start out our conversation by looking at a case. And this case is uh, of Mary. She is a 63-year-old female with 14 years of education. She's been having memory complaints, self-reported and corroborated by an informant, for almost a year, and she's having word-finding difficulty. She's misplacing objects. You know, she never did that before. Now she's misplacing her glass keys and phones several times a week. She's been feeling very anxious about this. She's worried that this is something that is worrisome. And her spouse reports that she's repeating herself. She's forgetting recent conversations. Uh, she's having to write things down. She's using what are call memory aids and cues more so than she did in the past. Her medical history senior for coronary artery disease and hypertension. Interestingly enough, no family history for Alzheimer's disease. And I have to tell you, a young woman like this, I would really drill down on the family history. On the physical, on the cognitive bedside assessment, uh, she scores 25 out of 30 on the mini mental state exam with uh, impairment in the free recall task. Uh, apple table penny, she got them all wrong and she lost two points on orientation. When you do some other assessments, there is some evidence of mild depression, anxiety, Our physical and neurological exam are normal. Uh, we do a, a B12 TSH MRI uh, and, uh, and blood work, and uh, they're effectively normal. So uh, let's kind of look through why are we using MRI, I want to talk about a few things. Uh, MRI has variable sensitivity and specificity as a diagnosis for dementia. If you look from left to right, you see uh, some atrophy. And so this is a marker of neurodegeneration. That's important. Uh, But, you know, we've been using uh, uh, imaging studies to exclude other pathologies, right? Stroke, tumor, hydrocephalus. Uh, And in this case, on the right-hand side, you see no stroke tumor hydrocephalus, although you see some micro hemorrhages on the right-hand side of that imaging, uh, and you would do it to rule out other causes. I want to say to you, we're actually moving toward looking at MRI a little different. So it's important for this audience to understand that MRI is going to get more and more uh, uh, look uh, and evaluation. One is we're going to look at volumetric scoring, meaning how much... Volume changes, and if you look at hippocampal volume, we know that uh, volumetric changes. If the hippocampal volume is below the fifth percentile uh, with volumetric change, that is a marker of neurodegeneration, which is a proxy marker of bre- degenerative brain disease. Second is we're going to want to quantify the number of microhemorrhages, and third is we want to score the uh, hippocampal uh, the white matter rarefaction. So here's uh, Mary again. You see that she has generalized atrophy. I want to point out to you that if you look at her coronal T1 section, her right hippocampus, remember that when the image is flipped, so the hippocampus on, the, uh, on your left-hand side is actually the right-hand side of the brain and vice versa. So if you look at the medial temporal lobe, I don't know if it shows up here, but the medial temporal lobe on the right is normal, and the medial temporal lobe on the left is atrophic, and there is one cortical infarct. So the reason to say this is, this is this enough to make a diagnosis? I would say it's, uh, it's telling, but not sufficient to make a diagnosis. So let me step back here and say one thing that's important to this audience. Number one is how accurate, let's say you're saying that's good enough for me. I've done this before. I've been seeing patients for 25 years. I can make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's just fine. Well, how accurate is that diagnosis? The answer is not that much. In primary care, it's 66%. In specialty care, 75%. So we're wrong one out of three to one out of four times. So the approach we've using, the diagnosis of exclusion is not that accurate. And we need to move now transformatively from a diagnosis of exclusion to a diagnosis of inclusion. So how do we get there? And the answer is understanding the biomarkers. and. Uh, the new approach would be biomarker confirmation, biomarker classification, and that includes understanding the three markers of Alzheimer's, which would be amyloid, tau, and neurodegeneration. Amyloid is a seminal important uh, feature of Alzheimer's disease. You cannot have Alzheimer's disease if you do not have amyloid. So it is an amyloidopathy. And if you look at the ATN criteria, you see the middle section here, A positive. So all A positives are theoretically Alzheimer's disease. And if you're not A positive, you do not. You may have degenerative brain disease, but it's not Alzheimer's disease. So it's important to understand ATN, amyloid tau neurodegeneration. Uh, and we can see patients who are A positive, T negative, or A positive, T positive. Uh, and the point is, is that there are various permutations, but that middle group, it represents the Alzheimer's spectrum, amyloid tau neurodegeneration. It's the ATM criteria. And I want to say this to you, is that we can now detect all of these things in clinical practice. If you look at neurodegeneration, you're going to detect it in three different ways. One is FDG PET, fluorodeoxyglucose. Two is you're going to detect it with hippocampal or volumetric changes or atrophy, And three, in the very near future, you might use NFL or neurofilament light. That is the three ways to detect neurodegeneration. Two of the three are commonly available in practice. In uh, A, if we're looking at A, amyloid, we know that we can do this with amyloid PET. We can do this with CSF, a beta 42 ratio. We are now looking at the fact that plasma, a beta 42 to 40 is available. If we're looking at tau, we can look at tau PET, CSF tau or plasma tau, uh, which are being investigated. And finally, let's take the left-hand side of this slide. The changes, the trajectory are different based on what biomarker we're talking about. So amyloid is an early seminal event. The deposition of amyloid precedes everything else. So amyloid precedes the onset of symptoms by decades the amyloid deposition, and you can detect that either with CSF or PET, and then you get the uh, tau changes, and then you get the tau PET changes, and then you get the neurodegeneration, and then you get the clinical symptoms. So the clinical symptoms are a lagging indicator. The clinical symptoms are the end of the disease, not the beginning of it. So by the time they walk into your clinic and mine, they've had a pathology accumulating for 20 years. So I am a big fan of amyloid PET. Amyloid PET has been approved, amazingly enough, for 10 years. So fluorobeta peer was approved in 2012, fluorobeta bane in 2013, and fluda made in 2014. So these have been approved for almost a decade. However, uh, CMS made a decision uh, 10 years ago that they're not paying for this. And it's very expensive. The tune of uh, 5,000 US is the typical thing. Uh, so we hope to change that, but it's important for you to understand where we're at. What, how do you read an amyloid PET? is you use the gray-white scale, uh, the gray scale, not the color scale. And you have to see that the gray matter and the white matter are clearly differentiated. And so if there is clear differentiation of the gray and white, that's a negative scan. A positive scan, as you see next to it, means there's no differentiation to the gray-white matter and that it's blurred. It's as if somebody just erased that diff- that juncture and that there's, Uh, when it's all dark like that, where there's no differentiation of gray-white, that is a positive scan. Now, technically speaking to a radiologist, they should be reading four sections, right? Frontal, parietal, temporal, uh, and global uh, are the different ways you should be reading it. And you need to be looking at different parts of the brain. You just can't look at one and say it's positive or negative. You have to look at four different parts of the brain. So amyloid PET approved for the last 10 years, not reimbursed, not used routinely in clinical practice. And the appropriate use guidelines for amyloid PET was really to uh, reduce the inappropriate use of that. So if they have MCI, that might be appropriate. If they meet the criteria for Alzheimer's, might be appropriate. Is particularly an unusual presentation. If they have young onset or something atypical, that would be appropriate. The inappropriate one would be patients who are clearly, you know, 90 and have had dementia for 10 years or 15 years. That would not be appropriate. You would never use it as a staging tool. You would never use it uh, uh, in normal people. Uh, and you would never use it for non medical reasons. So there is the appropriate use recommendation for amyloid PET. So I want to tell you that the field has not been idle for the last 10 years. There's actually been a huge investigation on how the clinical utility of amyloid PET in clinical practice called the IDEA study. And what we did is we enrolled 18,000 patients, ultimately ended up at 11,000 patients. These are patients with mild cognitive impairment or dementia. And the questions that were asked were twofold. One, does uh, having amyloid PET change your clinical diagnosis, management, patient discussion, treatment approach, uh, how you approach the patient. And the second one, will it change healthcare outcomes in terms of hospitalizations, deaths, et cetera? And the reason this is important is, this was a paper, paper published in JAMA in 2019, is resoundingly, resoundingly having amyloid PET change clinical practice up to 60% of the time. The treatment plan changed, what you said to your patients changed, how you uh, manage them changed, uh, what you prescribed changed, et cetera. And so it was very, very important. I wanna make a couple of points here on the right-hand side. People we called Alzheimer's disease were only amyloid PET positive 70% of the time. So again, you're making the point here that you think you're able to make a diagnosis. You're saying that 30% of the time, Patients we call Alzheimer's did not have Alzheimer's in their brain. So we are, again, not that accurate. And that's why having biomarker confirmation is important. But importantly, this having amyloid PET changed practice 60% of the time. And despite that, Medicare still doesn't pay for it. There is a new study called the New Idea Study going on now looking at underrepresented populations. And we should have that reading out in the near future. In 2018, we saw tau PET approved. Uh, again, not reimbursed tau PET, uh, the one that's approved now is called FLOR tau sapir, which is outstanding uh, and very accurate. And what makes tau PET important is that tau, we've known for a long time that tau correlates with clinical progression much better than amyloid. And the data reinforced by TauPET studies suggests exactly that, that if the better marker of progression to correlate with clinical progression is tau PET, not amyloid PET. So amyloid PET's a binary, you have it or you don't. Amyloid, yes or no, tau would be a very good marker of clinical progression, and it's very, very accurate, and recapitulates a pathological staging system called the Brock staging. Despite its very uh, tremendous accuracy, it is not used routinely in clinical practice, and tau PET is very, very expensive to the tune of $9,000. So we're not using it much in clinical practice. So that's the, uh, the imaging. That's the MRI, amyloid PET, PET. Let's look now at CSF testing. We measure three proteins, CSF amyloid, aba 42 CSF total tau, which is a marker of degeneration and global injury, and phosphorylated tau, particularly the 181. If you look at the meta-analysis, there's clear evidence that the meta-analysis suggests that CSF testing has great sensitivity and specificity. So we would measure these three proteins, amyloid, total tau, and phosphorylated tau, A-beta-42. I'm happy to tell you that uh, there are now multiple platforms that are uh, available, approved, uh, and cleared by the FDA. Uh, Just uh, recently, uh, CSF, A-beta-42, and P-tau uh, got an in vitro approval through the Alexis system, and, uh, and as of t- to December of 2022, we see that the markers for P-tau and A-beta-42 are approved and have FDA clearance. Uh, and we know that they have great sensitivity and specificity. If you look at the AUCs for A-beta-42, 0.86, and for uh, phosphorylated tau, 0.844. So a great AUCs. And the ratio of 42 to 40 has an AUC of 0.936. And if you use the uh, phosphorylated tau to A beta 42, so a ratio of phosphorylated tau to A beta 42, uh, AUC outstanding uh, uh, of 0.94. So great uh, ability to detect and differentiate. Uh, so the reason this is important is that uh, we, you know, the debate is what would you, measure. Would you just do a ratio of 42 to 40? Would you do just a a P tau? Or would you do a P tau to 42 ratio? And the clear evidence suggests that when you look at all three of these side by side, that the uh, 42 to 40 has a good ratio, but uh, the positive predictive value and negative predictive value favor P tau A beta 42 over just 42 to 40. So it's important that this audience understands uh, where this is going. A year ago, uh, there was a 42 to 40 approved in in vitro diagnostics uh, uh, and a good, reasonably good sensitivity and specificity. But a lot of people in the field said a 42 to 40 ratio important, but does not have the tau portion. And, and you see here, when you look on the bottom of this and the analytics, the sensitivity and specificity are all over the map. Uh, and so the, a lot of people have settled on the fact that 42 to 40 might be good, but the, having the total tau and tau adds tremendously. And so that's why there's a push to add phosphorylid tau and uh, P tau 181 and total tau to the diagnostic regimen. Uh, so uh, 42 to 40 is not considered sufficient routine practice, even though it's approved. So when will we use CSF testing? Similar ways, to the appropriate use recommendations would be similar to what you might see for a pet. And that is mild cognitive impairment, that is a persistent progressives or unexplained. If there's uh, an unusual feature that might be uh, typical of an Alzheimer, but you have to differentiate other things. Uh, Alzheimer's disease with the typical age of onset, uh, young onset Alzheimer's or dementia, If you're differentiating Alzheimer's from frontotemporal, and uh, if you are looking at it as a diagnostic, uh, which we may see in clinical practice. So I'm trying to say to you is that uh, these are the appropriate use we're using for uh, CSF in clinical practice. Now, I want to tell this audience that neither amyloid PET nor CSF testing has become routinely used in clinical practice. I, myself, as a practicing neurologist, Alzheimerologist, uh, uh, tend to get CSF testing more routinely than I would a PET, mainly because it's reimbursed. And now I can get CSF testing reimbursed uh, more routinely than I can amyloid PET. So we've been using a lot of CSF biomarker confirmation as part of the uh, diagnostic uh, uh, regimen. Importantly, I have gone from an a diagnosis of exclusion with a clinical accuracy of between 66 and 75% to a diagnosis of inclusion with CSF testing, genotyping, et cetera. And my specificity and sensitivity, my diagnostic accuracy is now well north of 90%. So we can go from a diagnosis of exclusion to a diagnosis of inclusion, and we are now making a progress in doing that. So let's go back to Mary. What we see here is that uh, on the bottom right, her PET scan was positive for amyloid. Uh, So that would be a positive scan for PET. Now, importantly, you have to understand what PET says in the label. The, The label says a negative scan excludes the possibility of Alzheimer's as the cause of the dementia or cognitive impairment. A positive scan is not by itself diagnostic. However, when you have a clinical syndrome of progressive cognitive decline and a positive PET, that increases the risk or possibility that this is Alzheimer's disease. On the left-hand side though, we see something critically important is that her P-tau to A-beta 42 was positive, meaning she has meets the biological definition, both by PET and both by CSF for Alzheimer's disease. Now, this is an illustrative case I wanna tell you that I would not order both CSF or PET. I would order mostly CSF or PET, but I would never do both at the same time. But if her p tau to uh, 42 ratio is above 0.23, that's positive. That would be a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So we have progressive cognitive decline. By the way, uh, clinical syndromically, I wanna say this to you so just we understand each other. I would say this patient had mild cognitive impairment, not dementia. Why? Because you're getting no evidence of full functional impairment. I would say mild cognitive impairment. So the categorical division is mild cognitive impairment. We already said there's no physical exam as normal. So no Parkinson's disease, no hypothyroidism, no B12 deficiency. And MRI shows no stroke, tumor, and hydrocephalus. So exclusion means no stroke, tumor, hydrocephalus, B12 deficiency, Parkinson's. But inclusion is biomarker confirmation of Alzheimer's disease. So it is the categorical definition of mild cognitive impairment and the etiological definition is due to Alzheimer's disease. Let me finish this section by talking now about where the field is going. And that is to really kind of drill down on the next big trend, which is plasma testing. Imagine a blood test in the and our ability to use blood testing to uh, make a diagnosis, and that's coming. And I think it's very, very exciting that we're seeing it. And the idea is that we can detect amyloid tau and neurodegeneration. And so let's kind of talk through the fact that we're looking at, in the middle, we're looking at uh, uh, neurofilament light. On the left, we're looking at GFAP or gliofilament glial activating protein, or on the right, A-beta 42 to 40 ratio. And so the question is, and, uh, and then the, finally, we want to look at P-tau. And which one would we look at, 181, 217, or 231? All these assays are under development. And why has the field gotten this good? Is because historically our detection assays were in the nanomolar range, 10 to the minus 9, but it turns out that these proteins are detectable in the picomolar and femtomolar range from 10 to the minus 12 to 10 to the minus 15, and that's why the assays have gotten that good. Now, the advantage of blood tests is it's minimally invasive, and theoretically would be cheaper, theoretically, than CSF testing and amyloid PET. All three are not reimbursed routinely, except CSF is more routine, uh, is reimbursed. Second is that uh, uh, amyloid PET gives you one protein, CSF gives you three proteins. Plasma, we're not sure where it's gonna be. Would it be a 42 to 40 ratio, or would it be uh, in combination with what's well, called a multiplex with P-tau? Or would you just do P-tau? And which one would you do? one 217, or 231? And my point is, is that they have varying sensitivity and specificity. Uh, uh, but I will say this to you about plasma testing. I believe very strongly that plasma testing would be uh, the um, di- the negative predictive value, meaning excluding other things. So if the value is normal, you would not need to go on to more testing. The question, would it be enough to go on to more testing uh, if the value is positive, or would you be able to go straight to treatment? So uh, about 18 months ago, one of the the first plasma tests became available, and that is uh, of mass spec 42 to 40 plasma amyloid became available. Uh, they now add APOE genotyping with it, and it has reasonable uh, positive predictive value and negative predictive value, but the sensitivity is good, specificity, not that good. Accuracy is pretty okay. Uh, it is It is now available, CLIA certified, not reimbursed, but it's kind of starting to make its way into practice, although I myself have not been able to get that into practice. But my point here is that, uh, uh, we would use it as part of our uh, routine practice in the near future. The question is, would a 42 to 40 amyloid be enough as a ratio? And that's not clear at this point. Uh, in this year, in 2022, uh, other companies got a breakthrough designation for p testing The P-tau accuracy has excellent clinical diagnosis. If you go to the bottom of this curve, the AUC is uh, uh, in the upper 80s. And if you add APOE4 genotyping, it's over 90%. So we know that the P-tau is going to be enough. The question that is not being asked is whether P-tau is the right approach. The question is, is would it be P-tau one 181, 217, or 231? And... Would it be with apoE or apo uh, apo forty two to forty ratio? But this is uh, what I'm trying to say is that uh, uh, this is another test that is moving forward into clinical practice. Although this one's not commercially available and not clear certified yet, uh, but we'll we'll see that in the near future. The question that's starting to be asked is: Would uh, APOE genotyping be part of clinical practice? And historically, the answer is no. And historically, there's been a lot of concern that using this was considered to be uh, reckless or dangerous because you didn't counsel your patients, et cetera. A couple of things I want to say to you is that the change in this year is that APOE4 is now part of risk, safety risk stratification. So if you're going to give a patient a monoclonal antibody, you want to do it for rate, safety risk stratification. So that's a fundamental change. The question has been, is it part of the diagnostic algorithm? Should it be part of the diagnostic? I'm one of the few people that has advocated for it. A lot of people have not. uh, But I think this is a transformative moment. And we might use it both potentially as a diagnostic in the diagnostic algorithm. uh, But more importantly, we would use it in the safety routine risk stratification, particularly in the advent of monoclonal antibodies. Now, I wanna finish up the last couple slides talking about uh, where plasma testing could go. I think a lot of people have looked past 181 P tau, past A beta 42, and are now settling on the possibility of uh, P tau 217. And so it's not just the detection of tau, but it's a specific isoform of tau. And if you look on the left-hand side here, that P tau uh, is greatly elevated up to uh, 700% over uh, normal, in symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. And importantly, P-tau, plasma T-tau does uh, similar AUCs to CSF testing. So what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of interest at the possibility that P-tau 217 could be reflecting what's going on biologically in in the brain. So the future of uh, potential for blood-based biomarkers are A, the negative predictive value. Uh, So a negative uh, test would exclude the possibility of other pathology. A positive test would uh, mean that you would do some possible further testing. So that's where it's going to be in clinical practice. But the question that is being asked, and this slide kind of talks about it, is it predictive? Is in my middle age, if I get a plasma test, or uh, would it be predictive of future dementia? And the answer is possibly yes. We just don't know quite yet. So diagnostic, I do kind of mention. The question is, will it become predictive? And we will know that in the near future, in the next few years. So with that, I think we have summarized where we're at in the biomarker space. So this section, we wanna really kind of drill down on the evolving therapeutic landscape. So adopting practice amidst an evolving Alzheimer's disease management paradigm and preparing to deliver disease-modifying treatments to the clinic. This is a hugely uh, developed pipeline Because in all of medicine, the area that's considered to be the disease with the most unmet need of all diseases, all disciplines, not just neurological, I'm talking about all diseases, it's Alzheimer's disease. And so there's now many, many trials going on, many drugs in the pipeline. And you see the breakdown at the bottom, amyloid tau, hypometabolism, immunity, oxidative stress, vascular changes, epigenetics, inflammation, and the like. So the point is, is that there are multiple targets and the future might be chemotherapy, not one drug, but four, five, six drug uh, cocktail to, uh, to address the complexity of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the area that's gotten a huge amount of focus is the monoclonal antibodies. Amyloid is an important seminal contributor to the pathophysiology that leads to the dementia, and so the question has been: Should we remove amyloid, or should we? Uh, 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 reduce the clearance, and I will say to you, without giving you a 20-year uh, uh, treatise on what's been going on for the last de- two decades, uh, treatment uh, production-based approaches have not succeeded, and so there's been a real focus on clearance-based approaches, and the monoclonal antibodies are enhancing clearance, and you see there are four, aducanumab, Lecanemab gantenerumab, donaninab, and we'll, let's kind of walk ourselves through each of these uh, and to understand where we're at in the present. Just remember that aducanumab was approved in 2021. There was appropriate use recommendations. It rolled into the clinic, never was reimbursed, and effectively has been used with almost no market penetrance because the access is is almost uh, non-existent. So we're not using aducanumab routinely, which is unfortunate because it was the first important step. The next drug that has gotten a lot of attention Uh, is the lacanumab data uh, just published recently in a major journal. Lacanumab is a monoclonal antibody. They did a phase two trial suggesting that at the 10 milligram per kilogram every uh, two weeks, uh, that was the dose that patients responded to the most, uh, and that uh, it was in patients biologically confirmed to have Alzheimer's, amyloid PET positive, uh, mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia, baseline mini-mental mild at 22 to 30, what they had to have uh, amnestic on the Wexter memory scale, uh, and they were randomized one- to- one to lecanemab or to placebo, uh, and uh, then they did multiple outcome measures, including uh, cognitive measures, CDR, some of the boxes, TEAEs treatment, emergent adverse events, uh, other secondary measures, and then longitudinal studies. And the drug, Lacanemab, met its primary endpoint. In the CDR, some of the boxes, the clinical dementia rating scale showed very, very robustly that the treated group slowed progression uh, 27% compared to placebo, and that this was very robust, statistically significant at every time point starting at six months, so 6, 12, uh, 9, 12, 15, 18 months, highly statistically significant with p-values, less than 0.0001 uh, and a very robust slowing in the rate of decline at 27%. Importantly, when you look at the amyloid reduction burden, it's a very, very huge robust uh, reduction, uh, over 60 centiloids reduction uh, in 18 months. So that was critically important. When you looked at the secondary endpoints, including ADAS-COG, ADAS is a marker of, uh, is a clinical uh, cognitive neuropsych measure uh, showing, again, slowing in the rate of decline, by about one and a half points, which is a 26% slowing. Importantly, when you did the activities of daily living, the ADL scale, the MCI due to AD, ADCS MCI ADL scale, the slowing was actually even more robust at 37%. And when you used a composite hybrid measure, which included ADL, ADAS, and CDR, the what's known as the ADCOMs, there was a 24% reduction in the rate of decline. So lecanemab hit on every primary and every secondary endpoint. So the question that has been asked is the biological effect, the clinical effect, I should say, driven by the biological effect. So what do I mean by that? Is it the removal of the amyloid that drives the entire clinical effect? And the answer is theoretically yes, but a lot of people speculate that it's more than that. We already said that amyloid PET was driven down significantly, on uh, uh, as you saw on the amyloid PET. But the CSF markers did exactly the same thing, drove uh, amyloid uh, CSF amyloid in a uh, in a upper direction, so removal, uh, and that the uh, plasma uh, amyloid did the exact same thing, going up. Uh, so we expected that's a reflection of the fact that there's less sequestered uh, amyloid. Importantly, that we looked at pTau, which is a marker of uh, progression, and pTau levels went clearly down, which is what we would expect and predict, and that was seen on CSF and plasma. So the secondary markers, which might be uh, more predictive of the clinical cause of uh, slowing and clinical progression, CSF pTau and plasma pTau went down, and we expected that to occur. Uh, also, uh, other markers of uh, uh, glial Uh, activation, that's the GFAP, and uh, neuronal and synaptic dysfunction, that's the neurogranin, were also
0: reduced. On January 6, 2023, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved licanumab via the accelerated approval pathway for the treatment of mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. The prescribing information for licanumab includes a warning for amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, or ARIA. ARIA usually does not have symptoms, although serious and life-threatening events rarely may occur. The most common side effects of lakanimab were infusion-related reactions, headache, and ARIA.
1: So the lakanimab story is very robust. Let's look at the rest of the field. The other drug that got a lot of attention recently is the gantanarumab story, and they did a large study in the graduate one and graduate two clinical trials. And their primary endpoints, just like the lacanumab, was CDR, some of the boxes, ADAS-13, ADCS-ADL, and FAQ, uh, and uh, also biomarker safety of uh, PET, CSF, MRI, and adverse events. What makes this, the Gantanerumab study different is it was uh, two things. Number one, it was a titration study. So it was an escalation of dose titration from 120 to 255 to 510 to 1020. Now understand that this is different from the previous phase two trials, which actually started to st- stayed in the 220 milligram range. So they actually increased the dose 5x. And then Uh, they looked at patients uh, over a long period of time. The other thing that was different is this was a subcutaneous formulation. So lacanumab and adacanumab are intravenous. uh, Gantanerumab was subcutaneous. And then there was a long period of follow-up, up up to two years. What it showed, disappointingly, is that it did not meet its pre-specified endpoint. And when you looked at the slung and the CDR sum of the boxes, the delta was only 8% with a uh, p-value, the effect size of 0.26 and a p-value of 0.044. In both studies of diseases, it favored treatment, uh, Gantanerib treatment over placebo, but the clinical effect was only 8%, not very robust. So the other thing we look at when we look at the monoclonal antibodies is what did it do in terms of reducing amyloid? And Gantanerib reduced amyloid plaque levels to below amyloid positivity threshold, but in fewer patients than expected. And the amount of total amyloid removed was lower than we expect. And you see this uh, again uh, in the graduate one and graduate two, the left-hand panels are actually the amyloid uh, levels and uh, the right-hand panels was the placebo and clearly showing that amyloid was reduced, but we wanted to get it much, much lower and very few patients got to the 28% threshold, as you can see. An important thing happened though in the recent CTAD meeting. The company decided that they would continue, discontinue, uh, including uh, graduation, open road, uh, postgraduate, uh, skyline, and a lot of trials. The question that has been asked is should the Diane TU study continue? And let's kind of look at the Diane TU study. So Diane stands for Dominantly Inherited Alzheimer Network. These are autosomal-dominant rare mutations of presenilin-1 and presenilin-2. TU stands for Treatment Unit. So this is run out of Washington University in St. Louis. And the question is pretty obvious. Uh, patients who have an overproduction autosomal DOM mutation, should they be allowed to continue these treatments? And the answer is, think about it. Uh, there's clear evidence when you give Mab to this autosomal dominant young onset de- uh, dementia, uh, this is the Diane network, that it did reduce CSF A-beta-42, NFL, total tau phosphorylated tau, and it did it very, very robustly. So the question is, should this uh, be allowed to move forward? And the answer is we hope so, but that decision has not been settled upon. A lot of people hold hope with the, the molecule Gantinerumab. And the fundamental issue that has been discussed, at least informally, not formally, is maybe was there not enough brain, brain penetrant? Did, did gantanirumab not get into the brain at sufficient doses to cause the clinical effect? As you saw, there was a clinical effect that just wasn't very robust and did not meet its pre-specified endpoint. So what if you could get gantanirumab in a more robust way into the brain? Why am I putting it to this way? Uh, all monoclonal antibodies, where we're talking about gantanirumab, dananinab, lecanumab, aducanumab, they're large proteins with greater than 10,000 Daltons proteins. So they do not cross the blood-brain barrier well. In fact, some estimates put it as less than 1% across the blood-brain barrier. So the question is, is could we hitch it onto something to facilitate its Uh, entry into the brain. And that's what this uh, linked transference uh, transferrin receptor is supposed to do. And it's called the brain shuttle. And the idea is that you bind the monoclonal to this shuttle and receptor, which will then facilitate its entry into the brain and increase uh, CSF concentrations up to eightfold. And so that is now being looked at as a possibility. And we see now that uh, there's the possibility that maybe getting in the brain might have more promise. The next monoclonal we need to look at is Dananinab. Dananinab is another monoclonal against amyloid. And uh, in their phase two trial, the Trailblazer study, uh, if you look at the left-hand side, the IADRIS, which is a composite measure of CDR, ADAS, and other things showed that it met its pre-specified endpoint. It was slowing the rate of decline by 32% on the IADRIS. When you look just at the CDR, clinical dementia rating scale, some of the boxes, the slowing was 23%. The amyloid reduction was, as you see, just striking six months to almost nothing. And then uh, by 18 months, uh, very, very low uh, in the rate of decline. And then the ADAS, again, slowing 39%, slowing in the rate decline. So Dananinab is now looked at as the next potential drug. Uh, understand that kind of Atacanamide has kind of fallen by the wayside because of the lack of reimbursement. mab did not meet its pre-specified endpoint. Lacanumab is uh, being uh, moving through the approval process. The one coming up behind it is Donananab. We know that when you look at the plasma levels with plasma treatment, that uh, Dananinab did what it's supposed to do. Specifically, in, when you look at plasma P-Tau, it reduced, very robustly reduced uh, uh, the plasma P-Tau 217. I think you see that in the upper left-hand side, that's panel A. When you look at NFL, not uh, that's the upper right-hand panel, not as clear. A-beta-42-40 40 ratio is up and down, uh, but the glial fibrillary astro, uh, astrocytic protein, GFAP, showed a very robust uh, decline uh, with the nanonim treatment. So we do know it does affect positively plasma biomarkers. The question then is what happens now? And I want you to know that uh, the drug has now moved into the phase three trial. That's the Trailblazer ALZ2 trial. This is an early symptomatic patients who are positive on amyloid PET. But the one thing that uh, the company did, which was very significant, is they also selected patients on the basis of their tau PET. And so they're saying that if you have very low PET tau in your brain, you're not going to progress and therefore you should not get it. And so then now they've included patients with intermediate amounts of tau because they know they progress pretty reliably and that we've enrolled high amounts of uh, tau in the brain, although the previous study did not enroll these patients, with a phase three design to look at intermediate tau in the primary analysis. A large study of 1,800 people with uh, a primary endpoint of CDR some of the boxes instead of the iadris. And when you look at other studies, the one study that they're also doing is a head-to-head trial uh, phase three, uh, Dananamab to aducanumab. And what there's, again, what they're doing is IV uh, Q every month compared to aducanumab uh, using the uh, dosing USPI, meaning the package insert dosing. Uh, and so there's a dose titration schedule for both Danananab and for uh, aducanumab according to the package insert uh, with the idea that you do first three doses with the low dose of denanab versus the high dose and again, uh, we have follow-up to up to uh, uh, 18 months. What they see here is that when you look at the amyloid clearance, the nanonab was very, very robust compared to aducanumab and uh, that the uh, uh, sanaloids went much, much farther down with the uh, 65% versus 17% in the aducanumab group uh, and the tau population went down 53% as opposed to 25% of Adocanamab. When you look at plasma P-tau, again, no change in Adocanamab, but very robust reduction by 25% in the dananab group. And this is also true in the intermediate tau population. So the point being here is that in the head-to-head study, uh, biological and clinical outcome measures really support denanab superiority over Adocanamab. Importantly, though, people ask, what about the safety profile? Clearly, the ARIA rates were very, very similar. There was no difference in ARIA rates, and therefore, uh, we would say to you that they have similar safety. Uh, people have wondered, what happened to adocanamab, And they have a long-term open-label extension. So when you looked at the uh, eMERGE and ENGAGE studies, it showed very clearly that aducanumab did meet its pre-specified endpoint in eMERGE did not meet its pre-specified endpoint in ENGAGE. uh, And that's where the controversy was, one of the many, many controversies that we saw. But when you looked at the CDR sum of the boxes, you see very clearly that uh, CDR sum of the boxes uh, did slow in the embark study. And I will say to you, I've had patients on long-term aducanumab doing very well for long periods of time. So we know that the open label extension showed that the safety was maintained and it did slow on the CDR some of the boxes. Now, a lot of controversy was surrounding its approval. And the question that has been asked is, uh, is what are, should we put some kind of framework around it? And the answer is yes. And we want to do that for selection of patients appropriately and monitoring of patients post-treatment. And this was the appropriate use recommendations specifically for aducanumab. There are now discussions on whether we'll do this uh, for the class, et cetera. So the, the AUR guidelines, published twice now, uh, in twenty one and t- 2022, is to help assist mar- uh, in, in management of patients on APOE, confirmation of, uh, of uh, prior treatment, uh, confirming, uh, confirming amyloid status, there's a lot of discussion on controversy around whether you give antecoag- if patients on anticoagulation should be able to get these drugs, and then the question then is, should how often should you be doing uh, MRI for safety and around ARIA? And this is super important because that has ch- caused the package insert to be revised. There are two issues that occur with ARIA, with monoclonals is that they cause. ARIA, amyloid-related imaging abnormality, and there are two kinds of ARIA, ARIA ARIA-E and ARIA-H, and you see in the case on ARIA-E, case one, two, three, four, that's pre and post-treatment, you see that's vasogenic edema. Uh, Most of the time, it is mild to moderate radiographically and clinically asymptomatic. When it is symptomatic, we know that it's headache, dizziness, and confusion, uh, and is rarely symptomatic and can cause some complications. REH is microhemorrhages, and you see uh, on that right hand, there's a lot of microhemorrhages. Importantly, you would select patients on the basis of microhemorrhages. So if you have patients with a lot of microhemorrhages, they should not be getting monoclonals because we know that if they have five and below, you can probably give them monoclonal pretty safely, but above 10, there's a risk for REE and REH. Uh, so then when we move on, we start looking at other things. Can we look beyond amyloid? Should we look at tau? And the idea is, well, if we know that amyloid does not correlate with clinical progression as well, should we be targeting tau? And that makes a lot of sense. However, it's been very, very difficult to get drugs that get into the brain and then get into the neurons. So then the question is, is should we be uh, do, using drugs that for, target free forms of tau, what are called uh, phosphorylated tau, in a way that prevents uh, the spread of tau from neuron to neuron in a process called prionosis. And so the idea is that these monoclones would get into the brain, get across the blood-brain barrier, and then somehow get into the brain tissue and bind these free forms of tau. That's what the monoclones would do. That's what the uh, vaccines would do. And it makes sense theoretically, but so far... Uh, the uh, clinical data has not been very robust. There is now a big push to focus on tau, and the question is: Is are those single monoclonals? Would it be in combination with anti-amyloid treatments? Would it be anti-amyloid and anti-tau? So there are a lot of uh, clinical trials that are being developed, uh, including this multi-arm study uh, called the Tau Next Gen Trial, and this might include presymptomatic participants with anti that will take an anti-tau antibody or placebo, uh, and then add an anti-amyloid treatment, symptomatic that might include combinations with anti-amyloid and anti-tau treatments. Uh, We would then have multiple uh, strategies that are developed. The question then becomes uh, if the primary endpoint is tau, pat, or is it CSF, or is it clinical outcome measures? And then if the biomarkers are positive, would it run for more to look for clinical uh, cognitive changes And would there be multiple arms? In other words, these are new trial designs that are being considered as we get along. I'm going to bring you back to Mary. If you remember Mary from our last uh, session, Mary uh, had mild cognitive impairment. We said not full dementia. So the categorical definition was mild cognitive impairment, and the ideological definition was Alzheimer's, so mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease. So the question is that what do we do next? And we said that we talked to her about a clinical diagnosis. We talked about the possibility of progression. We talked about future planning. We talked about therapy, support groups, social work. Then we talked about trials and disease-modifying treatments. Should, the, should Mary get a MAB? And the answer is, first thing I do is look at her MRI. I said there was not a lot of microhemorrhages, so she could be eligible for a MAB. Nothing about a checklist would prevent her from getting a MAB, And so I might think about a monoclonal antibody. The other thing I would tell you is the question is, is do things that help manage your health, clinical, uh, physical exercise, blood pressure management, cog stim, social engagement, uh, and uh, aggressive blood pressure management. So what I'm saying is that Mary would be going down a pharmacological directed pathway and a lifestyle directed pathway. And so we have to look at treatment in totality. It's not one or the other, but it's both, but it starts with an accurate diagnosis. And then you talk about the new treatment options available to you. So the last segment, I want to really kind of talk about how we build our clinical practice to achieve what we need to achieve for the optimal care of our patients. We talked about an aggressive, forward-thinking approach to diagnosis, and that's going to be really important. In the second segment, we talked about the new and emerging treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And in the final treatment, in the final session, I wanna talk about building a collaborative multidisciplinary care team to improve patient-centered care. Remember this, in a memory clinic, we're dealing with patients and their families, some of them in crisis, some are not. And so I will tell you that you gotta find out what are the touch points. There are a lot of things that occur, right? We see behavioral things emerging. These are drivers of, uh, of morbidity and mortality. You gotta have at your fingertips what we have, which is social workers, clinical nurses, et cetera. We also have a halo of services at our clinical practice model, including specialized testing, CSF testing in the clinic and across three at the hospital, PET scanning. Uh, we have infusion services on campus. So we build inside a halo. So we, in an integrated model, you would have the diagnostics and the treatments available. And this is gonna be important because the worry I have is if you outsource all this to different entities, you lose control of the different parts of this. So having all three, uh, meaning the diagnosis, uh, the imaging, the testing, and the infusions all at your fingertips with the uh, inner circle of social workers, research nurses, clinical nurses, uh, uh, can also be beneficial uh, as you try to manage your patients. So what do we need to do? Uh, We need to educate our clinicians. We need to tell them that refer your patients in. If they detect any memory loss, even if it's a subjective memory complaint, have them referred in. Do some minimal testing prior to the referral, right? So B12, TSH, MRIs, I jokingly say. But in our clinic, we would then do the specialty testing, the CSF testing, the PET scans, maybe even the plasma when it's available. We have a multidisciplinary clinic. We have psychiatrists, neurologists. Uh, we have the nurses, uh, so we would have the multiple disciplinary team, and we would have access to the uh, biomarker testing, PET, CSF, blood-based biomarkers, uh, and uh, they would be locally available. So this is the kind of an algorithm that has been discussed and uh, published upon. Is how do you get there? I would say to you, from left to right, the thing you have to consider most importantly is that a primary care physician must not dismiss a clinical complaint of a cognitive decline. If anything else, take it seriously. Don't say you're distressed, you're tired, too much to worry about. Ask, learn, refer, do a minimal workup. Or if you don't do a minimal workup, refer in. So this is the first thing is detection. It's critically important that the primary care physician is detecting patients. The real debate is going on about the United States Preventive Task Force uh, and the question is is should they be doing routine screening in the annual Medicare wellness visit? And so far, the USPTF says no, but I think there is still an interest in seeing some kind of baseline cognitive screening as part of routine medical practice. Once there is a concern, or at least identification, you should do referral. And referral means that they come in to the specialist who might do specially exe- uh, testing, uh, imaging, blood work, plasma testing, CSF testing, neuropsych testing, imaging, structural imaging, biomarker testing, and then then the specialist would then would give them access to the newest treatments. I think that's where it's going to go. Eventually, we hope to see the MAPs and other treatments kind of pushed out over the general population or general medical population, but it might start out in specialty care and kind of make its way backwards. But it's important we get the patients into the chair, and the way we're going to do that is with biomarker confirmation. So this is an example of a workflow, and this will be available for you to download and look at. I'm a big fan of neuropsych testing, and I am a person that uses a lot of it. Uh, I also can identify patients who are in distress. And so you can look at the caregiver. The caregiver, which I call the informant, should be interviewed in addition to the patient. You should not just I look at the patient and say, you're doing all of this on the bedside. The informant has to give you the information that will drive the, uh, the referral or uh, the adventica- identification of the things that are prob- uh, problematic. The primary care physician should do a physical neurological exam and then refer on as we talk about. We talked about where there's a psychiatrist, psychologist, dementia specialist, neurologist, geriatric psychiatrist, geriatrician. There's a comprehensive care model, model that could play, take place, and uh, but it's driven by the referral from the primary care physician. What that looks like in terms of the specialty care model, that needs to be decided at the single staff, but I will tell you that we should have available to us, uh, as a dementia specialist, multiple aspects of that including this neuropsych testing, the social worker, the counselor, or the support staff, the nurse, et cetera. Uh, so the collaborative care model uh, should be a systems-based approach. Uh, these are things that uh, s- can be scaled. And I use that very, very carefully because people say, well, you're gonna lose money start, start to finish, that there's no point in scaling. And the answer is yes, on the front end, but over time, you can find ways to uh, offset the cost when you do the volume, when you bring in patients, and uh, these things uh, can be supported in a variety of different models. So, health system might support the idea of uh, having a dementia co- model. And why would they do that? Because in an integrative care model, your dementia patients cost the system more than other non-demented patients. So, if you if the people understand that if you do aggressive front end care, you might save in a DRG. You might save on the back end and reduce total cost of care, that might be the validation for why you need the multidisciplinary team. So you wanna uh, have uh, at your fingertips a team-based care approach. I think I've mentioned that now multiple times. We actually don't just pick and choose people, they are dedicated. We're not just borrowing uh, staff from other uh, disciplines, we're actually uh, dedicated people and that can uh, are specially trained in Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, that we emphasize prevention whenever we can Uh, And we have a decision-making that includes uh, nurses, social workers, physicians, caregivers, et cetera. And then we uh, use it on the right-hand side to drive biomarker confirmation, drive use of EMR, drive standardization protocols, drive uh, clinical measure outcomes, avoid polypharmacy whenever possible, and outcome monitoring. So this is gonna be very important as we move to uh, this approach. And why am I starting with this? My point here is that if you're going to have patients getting monoclonal antibodies, which sounds obvious, but how are you going to get the patient in the chair? you got to go with the N and go backwards. So what does that look like? So the patient in, the, in getting a monoclonal antibody in infusion services has already had a diagnosis. That is a biomarker confirmed diagnosis, which means that we've already identified the clinical syndrome, the, the, the categorical definition. We've excluded other pathologies. We have done all the testing. And then while along the way, we're identifying what are the touch points? What are the stress points? What are patients and their families needing? And so it's not just the infusion. It's going to be all the things along the way. Are you discussing driving? Are you discussing sleep? Are you discussing caregiver burden? Are you discussing caregiver stress? Are you discussing mood issues? What is it that's coming along with the diagnosis? And so it's important that this audience understands that there are many aspects of treatment of Alzheimer's beyond just a little denepazil. It has to be all aspects that have to be considered. And that's why I think you need to think about a collaborative care model. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GAZ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group.